a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Clark Rockefeller has lost everything. His million-dollar houses, his wife Sandra, and custody of his seven-year-old daughter, Ray. He sits in his fifth-floor room at the Boston Algonquin Club, where the wealthy and well-connected come when they fall on hard times. In Clark's case, he's just gone through a bitter divorce. But he doesn't care about the money. He doesn't care about the house. All he wants is his daughter, Ray. And today, July 27, 2008, he's going to get her back. Clark's divorce allows him three supervised visits with his daughter every year. So when Ray arrives to greet him, she's trailed by a social worker. But Clark Rockefeller has other plans. There's a limo parked at the end of the street, and as the trio approaches it, Clark points the social worker's attention in the other direction. As the social worker turns around, Clark shoves him to the ground and throws his daughter into the car. He dives in after her, shouting, go, go, go! The limo driver doesn't realize that he's aiding a kidnapping. All he knows is Clark paid him to drive fast. He peels out just as the social worker gets back to his feet and grabs at the car door. The limo drags him to the hard pavement. Ray is crying in the back seat. She hit her head on the car door when Clark threw her in. As they race through the Boston streets, Clark realizes he's done it. He's gotten his daughter back. But in other words, he's kidnapped his daughter. Everything has gone exactly as planned, and Clark must be feeling a rush of relief and gratitude. Little does he realize, this stunt to keep his daughter will be the key to unlocking a past he's kept secret for decades. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. All right, we got a spoiler alert here. Clark Rockefeller is not exactly who he says he is. He's a man of mystery. More specifically, he's a man of many identities. And all of these identities are rich and powerful. Because frankly, when you're choosing a new identity, why not go with a family name that will open doors and impress at cocktail parties? He drops their names into conversations with friends and strangers. Rockefeller, that is. But also, he claims that he's a Battenberg, and this is where I'm going to cue God Save the Queen. Yes, the Battenbergs, as in the family that is related to the royal family in England. Clark, he never says he's heir to the Rockefeller fortune. He never says that outright. He doesn't even say, look, I'm related to the Rockefellers. He just wears really nice suits, lives in really nice apartments in Manhattan, and he tells people, hey, call me Mr. Uh, Rockefeller. <laughs> so everyone has some insinuations they make in their own heads about that. 
it probably helps him that he carries around a pocket knife that has the name Nelson Rockefeller engraved in the side, and he's always sort of nervously, I don't know, fiddling with it in public. And on occasion, he tells people that they can call him Michael, which, fun fact, Michael Clark Rockefeller of Standard Oil was the youngest son of Nelson Rockefeller, who disappeared on an expedition in the jungle of New Guinea in 1961. So I think Clark's kind of saying to folks, draw your own conclusions, who I may or may not be. What's amazing is that no one's like, you guys, I found him. I found him. <laughs> they like, keep him under wraps. I don't understand how that works. If someone find side note, if I ever had a long lost son or a son that disappeared and he turned up in like California, please tell me. Okay. That's just all I want to say. Just, just tell me. But it's under the name Clark Rockefeller that he meets this woman who will eventually become his wife. And frankly, I already feel bad for her. Her name is Sandra Boss. And like her name implies, she's a boss. She's actually a Harvard Business School student, and she's super smart. But she says that she's socially awkward, which frankly, Sandra, aren't we all? She's interning at Merrill Lynch at the moment, but she's on her way to bigger and better things. And in 1993, she goes to a party that is themed around the whodunit board game Clue. That sounds so it fun. sounds so fun. What would you dress up as? Um, I would want to be, um, what was the kind of crazy one that wears, uh, oh, Miss Peacock. She's kind of like off, it feels she like, peacock. right? Yeah, I just want to be the maid. You know, I think like a oh, French yeah. maid outfit would be You'd be a good be Mrs. White. Oh, you'd be cute. Thank yeah. you. Oh, Quinn, appreciate that. Um, this clue party is being hosted. <laughs> Quinn. I do have something in my teeth and Quinn I can see it. Picking. I can feel it now, too. Quinn, I'm so sorry. Quinn, do you need to get that? Okay, Quinn, let's hold. Quinn has something in her teeth. Do please we got continue. it? Okay, I please got keep it. this in. Okay. She got so distracted by the peacock, she wanted to peacock her teeth. Okay, so this party is being hosted at Clark Rockefeller's Manhattan apartment. And Sandra comes in, and she's dressed as Miss Scarlet. And Clark is dressed as Professor Plum. It's like a Fifty Shades of Red situation. Yes, and instantly, Sandra's struck by how eccentric this host is. He's short with thick-rimmed glasses, reddish blonde hair, which he's clearly losing, and he's wearing boat shoes with no socks. Um, in fact, Clark never wears socks. So, wow, I'm already really taken with this uh, characterization of him. The pheromones that are just radiating off of him oh, must God. be pungent. But what he, <laughs> la- But what he lacks in looks... He makes up for in charisma and foot sweat. The whole night, Sandra is wowed by him. Men are usually intimidated by her because she's super smart and a boss, but Clark seems to really be gravitated towards her. They talk about her business aspirations. They talk about Clark's work for developing nations, how he went to a gifted kids program at Yale when he was only 14, how then he graduated from Stanford, and sadly, how his parents tragically died in a car accident when he was a teenager. Yes, that is a very sad story. But like all things with Clark, it's got like a very healthy dose of weird mixed in. Because after explaining this death of his parents to her, he's also like, and then when they died, I was so sad. I was traumatized. They became mute for 11 years. And what snapped him out of this 11-year silence was that one day he saw a dog. And that inspired him to break his silence saying the non-word woofness. 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's big. Well, woofness aside, Clark is very easy to talk to. He's clearly very interested in Sandra. And he's a Rockefeller? According to the Evening Standard, though, Sandra Boss's family are not as in love with Clark as she is. Again, been there, done that. They frankly, they smell a rat. But maybe it's just the stench of bare feet in those boat shoes. Or both. Or both. So they end up doing a little bit of digging, and they discover that this Clark Rockefeller guy may be padding his resume a wee bit. They can't find any proof that he actually went to Stanford. And they're pretty certain that he's not a Rockefeller. Well, nothing they come up with can really stop Sandra at this point from falling in love with Clark. She doesn't care if he's a Rockefeller or not. He's a little quirky, sure, but he's also genuinely seems kind and interesting and like a good guy. So when he gets down on one knee with a powder blue Tiffany's box in hand to propose to her, she's like, heck yeah, I will marry you, Clark Rockefeller. I can't imagine that ring is from Tiffany's. Okay, but moving on. The two of them, they end up getting married in 1995 in a small ceremony in Nantucket. It sounds really idyllic. I mean, Nantucket is a little retreat for the rich and famous, so it's suiting that it's a Rockefeller. Um, I'm assuming they're eating lobster rolls or some sort of like fun seafood. But only eight people come to the wedding, including Hmm. Clark's dog, Yates. And his dog is named Yates. <laughs> and he went to Yale. He's not very creative. And wow. funny. he just like replaces The pretension some- smells as bad as his shoes. <laughs> What's crazy, though, is none of Sandra's friends come, which, again, that is a red flag. And weirdly, none of Clark's family shows up either. There is ne'er a Rockefeller in sight. I mean, but I'm also thinking, hey, if they are serving lobster rolls, they are really expensive. Maybe their guest list could only be eight people. Right. Well, there was a lot of things that were strange about this wedding. Not just that it was small, but because everyone in Sandra's family and all her friends suspect that this guy isn't who he says he is. Also, this was a Quaker wedding. And you might ask yourself, what's so weird about that? Well, not much. But for one, neither Sandra nor Clark are Quakers. And two, Quaker marriages are a little bit different than your average wedding ceremony. They are pretty light on the paperwork. So if you want to avoid a bunch of, you know, legal documents and paperwork and frankly not reveal your true identity, then a Quaker wedding it shall be. Oh, can you say red flag? I I find myself saying it over and over and (laughs) over again with this guy. I mean, your entire family is telling you something's up. Your friends are saying something's up. You got to be suspicious, but to her credit or to her debit, not Sandra. To her debit. No, listen, my heart goes out to Sandra. Love is a powerful thing. It's intoxicating. And she even says she's really successful in business, but she's pretty awkward socially. So here's this guy who says he loves her and he shows her how much he loves her and she's swept off of her feet. So she sticks by him through thick and thin. I mean, she's not going to abide any suggestion that he's a fraud. And what's really scary is he starts trying to isolate her from the people who care about her most, which we know is something that people do when they're not really in a healthy relationship. But Sandra, I mean, is also a really smart businesswoman, right? 
At this point, she's a high-powered business consultant, and she's making $2 million a year. She's a highly intelligent woman, but in the matters of the heart, maybe not so much. Right. And it's only a matter of time before things are going to start crashing down. I mean, she's married to him for a while, and then Clark, she starts to see this darker side in him. He has a temper. He's a yeller. He's very controlling. He wants to pick her up from work every day, take her home, controls what she eats, when she sleeps, you know, trying to maybe uh, deprive her of some of those things so that um, she's in a position where she really relies on him even more, even though she is the breadwinner. He controls all that money. He's not bringing in any money himself. Oh my God, she's the breadwinner and he's controlling the bread. I hate it all. Yes, well said. It's 1999, and in one of his bouts of paranoia, he makes them move out of New York, where she works, where she makes her living, and they move all the way to Cornish, New Hampshire, which is a very, very tiny town, which means that Sandra has to make a four-hour commute every day. That is wild. That's, That's nuts. That's terrible. And you know, Clark, he didn't just pick Cornish on a whim. He... I'm sure he really, like, studied the maps and came up with this place because this guy has strong opinions about where they can live, where they can vacation. He says things to her like California and Connecticut are off limits because they are evil. And with this move to this tiny town, Clark begins to lose control. His eccentricities are starting to wear Sandra down. So Sandra gets her own place in New York so that she doesn't have to make that insane commute daily. And when she gets her own place, she gets a taste of freedom, a taste of time away from Clark. And she realizes that maybe she kind of likes being away from this guy. And Clark, who's paranoid to begin with in weird, quirky ways, that paranoia, it's getting worse. It's getting alarming. He's having their mail routed through a P.O. box. He's installing different phone lines with mismatched country codes for them. He's really careful about what he eats, and he's like, oh, you can't trust kitchens. He builds a bunker. He parks fake security vehicles outside their house. I mean, I guess the explanation is, I'm very powerful. I'm this Rockefeller, and you can never be too careful. But this has to be alarming to Sandra. And Sandra, with her tastes of freedom, she's starting to think about leaving Clark. Go, Sandra, go. It's like we're cheering you on from the sidelines in this respect. Run. Run, Sandra, run. It's like maybe she would be happier. Maybe she would be healthier. And frankly, she probably would be a lot richer without this guy. And I think he suspects this too. Because it's not long after this that Sandra is pregnant. By 2006, Sandra and Clark have a beautiful five-year-old daughter named Ray, and Clark is in love with this kid. She's like his little American girl doll. He dresses her up like a preppy little version of himself. I assume she's like wearing polos and boat shoes herself and has like a sweater draped over her shoulders tied and carries a tennis racket with her. Um, And then also he makes her memorize the periodic table, and then shows her off to his friends. I can't imagine she's enjoying this as much as Clark is. I mean, I think she probably gets excited that she's making her dad happy, but it does seem sort of gross. Um, But, you know, Ray, she's really, really smart, and she's ahead of all her peers that she has at school. 
but she's also really struggling to socialize. Her school tries to call Sandra a bunch of times, but Clark, wouldn't you know it, gave them the wrong phone number. Hmm, an innocent mistake. I'm going to give that an audible eye roll on that one. Glue, 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 glue. <laughs> oh, get better. <laughs> Once Sandra finally talks to the school when they get in touch, she finds out that Ray has been acting out. I think that this comes from her dad has been so regimented with her and has sort of like designed everything she's done, thought, and worn since the day she was born that she hasn't had the space to just play and live a normal childhood. He's literally robbed her of her imagination and creativity. That's a horrible thing to do to a five-year-old. And when Sandra hears this, she immediately becomes concerned. She wants her daughter to have friends. She wants her daughter to be happy. She wants her daughter to have her own goals, her own dreams. It's like Clark has been molding her to be what he wants instead of accepting who his daughter truly is. So she tells Clark that she wants to do something about this. She wants to help. But since Clark is like raising Ray, he's like house husband, right? So he takes that as a major affront. He's pissed. He's like, no way, and starts screaming at Sandra, literally screaming at her at the top of his lungs, saying that she can never speak to Ray's school again. It's way over the top. It's psychotic. And it's in this moment that something just switches for Sandra. It's like the spell that he had on her breaks. She knows that Clark has been telling lies to impress people, but she admits to not really knowing the true extent of his lies. But now she's realizing that it's not just her being affected by this, it's her kid too. And she realizes that maybe her friends and her family have been right about him this whole time. And, like, right on cue, her dad calls her up and is like, Hey, you know how Clark said his mom was this famous actress? Well, I looked up that actress, and she's alive. Didn't his mom die in a car accident years ago? And then her accountant, like, happens to mention that Clark told him he was Sandra's brother, not her husband, so that he wouldn't show up on her tax documents, which feels like another way to... uh not have to file paperwork that might require, I don't know, an identity. There are just so many straws that break the camel's back at this time in her life that Sandra's like, you know what? I'm going to hire a PI. I got to have somebody that knows what they're doing look into this guy's past. And she does this and finally uncovers the depth of his deception. Because what this PI finds is astonishing. Everything that Clark has told Sandra about himself and his past is a lie. So we've sort of outlined for you this relationship, this cursed relationship, how it came to be, and step-by-step how it happened. But I keep going back to the sort of entrapment of it all. Like, this guy is making zero dollars and zero cents. He needs Sandra to stay with him to maintain his lifestyle, and the lengths he goes to to keep her at his side are just major red flags. I mean, he's also super manipulative and super controlling. And again, I said it once, I'll say it again. It's like he's isolating her from her friends and family. Like, I can't imagine how hard it must feel for Sandra, right? Like, she must feel so alone. 
Yeah, and it would be different if he was actually a cool guy to hang out with. But everything I read about him, I was like, this guy doesn't strike me as like, I don't know, a rich, cultured man that's going to like show her the world and bring new things into her life. He's like, let's live in Cornish. My favorite things to eat. I read that he ate only white things. He only ate like white bread and turkey. But sometimes if he was with people and they were out, he would order oysters Rockefeller and then he would be like – you know why oysters Rockefeller are green? And they'd be like, why? And he'd be like, it's the color of money. Gross. You know what I mean? Just gross. Gross. He sounds like a loser. A loser. Woofness. But it's really difficult to see Sandra through all this, right? It's like the real victim in this moment is her. It's like she was just happy to be loved at first and was blinded by love. And it Sounds like she didn't have a lot of romantic history. So it's like, you remember the first time someone told you they loved you? Like that feeling of falling in love and bliss and wanting to live in that cocoon. And I think she had really big hopes and dreams for this relationship. And I think when she sees what he's doing to their daughter, I think that maternal instinct just comes in and she's like, we got to get out of here. Not for me, but for my kid. She's protecting her kid. Yeah, it it seems like you're right. It seems like in the end, her daughter matters more to her than her own well-being. When Sandra Boss hires this PI to dig into Clark Rockefeller's background, he's pretty surprised because he finds exactly nothing. When I say nothing, what I mean is no social security number, no birth certificate, no assets in his name before his marriage to Sandra. It is like he did not exist before he met her. She's horrified. She's embarrassed. But one thing is for sure, she's got to get the hell out of there. It's time, Sandra. Let's run. So when she finally files for divorce in 2007, Clark, would you believe it? He responds with even more lies. So in divorce court proceedings, he claims that his parents died in a car crash, which we've heard before, when he was young, and it was so upsetting that he became mute and he suffered memory loss. Oh, memory loss, making you think that your mom was this actress that's still alive Mm. today? I don't know, Clark. I know a lot of people must feel pity when they hear that car crash story, which is probably why he tells it. But I'd love to see him in court tell everybody about woofness and see how well that goes over. Obviously, he doesn't. He edits that. He withholds any information, actually, about his past from the divorce court, even if that means that he's going to lose the custody battle for his daughter, Ray. And despite all the things he's done, I think we can all agree that it does seem like he cares about her. He calls her Snooks. And it's the only sort of real love we've seen from this guy, in my opinion. You say love, I say control. I mean, is it love if he would rather give up his daughter than reveal his own identity? I don't think so. I think this is the one person he can truly control because she's young and doesn't know any different. So again, he gives his daughter up, and what he gets in return is a divorce settlement of something like $800,000. And Clark Rockefeller is given a paltry three visitations a year. I guess the judge seemed less impressed with his story. So now his ex-wife, Sandra, moves across the world to London with Ray, hoping that she can escape Clark once and for all by putting an ocean between the two of them. 
It's been barely a year since the divorce proceedings ended. It's July 27, 2008, and Sandra is staying at the Four Seasons in Boston, and her phone rings. It's a U.S. social worker. He's calling her to inform her that Clark has kidnapped her daughter. And this is exactly what she feared would happen if Clark was allowed visitation. She had asked the judge not to allow it. But three visits a year seemed a merciful ruling at the time. Now, it just seems absolutely foolish. Yeah, she knew what kind of guy Clark was. And of course, he planned this whole thing out. He told the limo driver that the social worker was a family friend that he was trying to lose. He was kind of like, oh, this guy won't leave us alone. We just want our time together, my time alone with Ray. He said that they were headed to Newport, Rhode Island. But when the driver dropped Clark and his daughter off, another friend picks them up and drives them further into Manhattan. And from there, they took a train out of New York to God knows where, because that's when they disappeared off the map. Amber Alerts are issued all over the Northeast and then around the country. Clark Rockefeller's picture, or whoever this guy is, is plastered on the nightly news. Wanted for kidnapping a child. His child. Calls flood in from people in states as far away as California and as close as Connecticut. There's a lot of people who claim to have seen Clark Rockefeller. But many of these callers know him by a different name. Actually, they know him by a lot of different names. Clark has led many lives under many identities, leaving a trail of confusion, betrayal, and even death in his wake. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't know about you, Quinn, but I want like X-Files soundtrack happening. Like, doo-doo. Like, who is this guy? Who the hell is this guy? I mean, 
Well, that's interesting. You know, Clark was living in this small town of Cornish for a really long time with Ray while Sandra was spending most of her time in New York. So a lot of the neighbors knew him. And they come forward at this point and they're like, oh, that guy kidnapped his kid. Listen, he was always pretty weird, kind of a weirdo. He had a strange accent we couldn't quite place. And most of us, we didn't really like him. And he would do weird things like, uh, I don't know, one guy in town says that he was disliked by Clark. And so Clark went after him and really was trying to ruin his reputation in crazy ways, you know, like asking the guy's maid to like find dirt on him in the house that he'd pay her for. And he just, he'd flip on a dime. Clark would uh, go after people really suddenly. He seemed unhinged, like somebody that just needed to be in control, which sounds, I mean, we've seen that, right? Totally. I I just can't help but think about Sandra in this moment and, like, how she must be feeling, right? Like, her daughter got her out of this unhappy relationship, and now her daughter has been kidnapped by the – like, it's just – like, I can't imagine as a mother, as a woman, how she must be feeling. And I think as soon as they called her and told her what had happened and how her daughter had been kidnapped, didn't she say something like, I knew this would happen. Now we'll never find her. Right? Didn't yeah, she say something she like that? She knows he's devious. She doesn't know how deep the devious runs, but she's like had a taste of it enough to be like, this guy is good at lying and good at hiding. And if he has my kin and wants to keep her, I don't see a way that you're going to outsmart him. Totally. It's like this guy has tricked her in every part of her life, including possibly the conception of their daughter. So it's like there is nothing off limits for this guy. This guy will stop at nothing to get what he wants. Six excruciating days after Sandra Boss's daughter was kidnapped by her ex-husband, Clark Rockefeller, police finally find his hideout. He's holed up in an apartment in Baltimore, Maryland on Ploy Street that he bought under the fake name Chip Smith. He also bought a catamaran, which is docked at a marina two miles from his home. At least he's got, like, a good reason now to wear those boat shoes, you know? <laughs> Still not a good reason to not wear socks. We have ankle socks, folks. Look into it. <laughs> at this point, it isn't clear if Ray really understands what's happening or how she feels about it. Like, she does love her dad, this little girl. Um, And, wow, the guy certainly does have a talent for theatrics. Um, It looks like it's his plan to flee on a catamaran. I mean, to where? Who knows? I guess his backup plan is just take to the sea, maybe just trust in maritime law. Maritime law will let you do anything. So I guess it is a pretty safe bet. But before Clark can go through with any more shenanigans, police lure him away from his daughter. What they do is they tell him that his catamaran is sinking. So he runs out of the hideout on Ploy Street and they grab him while he's away from Ray. And they arrest him. Sandra collapses in tears when she hears the news. Her daughter is safe and sound and her ex-husband is rightfully in police custody. On August 2nd, 2008, Clark Rockefeller is brought in for questioning by the police. And they quickly realize that this guy, he has no social security number, no birth certificate, no driver's license. They can't even trace his history to before 1993. And when they ask him about it, 
he claims he just can't remember. Yeah, it's divorce court all over again. What the PI finds, these police find. What he said in divorce court, he's now saying to them, no one is able to pin down Rockefeller's identity. They describe him as a ghost. So the police take to the streets. They have to start interviewing people who have called in after seeing Clark's picture on the news. There are calls from California, from Connecticut, all of these people who knew him in the 80s. I don't know if you remember, these are the evil states. And they realize that Clark Rockefeller's recent antics are just the tip of the iceberg. Let's talk about those callers from Connecticut. They're saying that Clark Rockefeller bears a striking resemblance to a Wall Street bond dealer named Christopher Crow, a rather odd fellow, his co-workers will recall. One remembers inviting this guy Christopher to Thanksgiving dinner, and Christopher brags to him about, oh, what car am I going to drive? Uh, maybe my Alfa Romeo? No, you know what? I, I think I'm going to take the Lamborghini. Well, guess what? What? This guy showed up in an old, beat-up Chevy, saying, oh, you, well, you know what happened? My garage door was broken, so I had, to, I had to borrow the maid's car. I had to take the maid's car to dinner. You couldn't take a taxi? You couldn't take a taxi. You had to take the maid's car, her only mode of transportation. How it's rude, frankly. It's Thanksgiving. She needs the car. Let her with your out of the house. Let her go with her family, you jerk. And then after being fired from one of the many high-profile jobs he had on Wall Street, his superiors started, like, looking at his applications and things like that. And they noticed that his social security number is the same social security number as the serial killer David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Get this. In 1988... Christopher Crow was wanted by Connecticut police for questioning after he tried to sell a stolen car that belonged to a California man named John Sohus. Okay, so these are the calls that are coming from Connecticut, one of the evil states. Let's bring you to the phone calls that are happening in California, another one of the evil states, according to Clark Rockefeller. So the police get a call from California saying that Clark Rockefeller looks a lot like this guy, Christopher Chinchester, who lived in a guest house that belonged to John Sohus and his wife, Linda. And both John and Linda went missing shortly before Christopher Chinchester skipped town in 1985, and no one has heard from him or seen him since. But right now, with all these calls coming in from California, all these calls coming in from Connecticut to talk about Christopher Chichester, Christopher Crow. These are just stories, right? There's no proof. I mean, people can call in and say they saw Bigfoot. We need more than stories. So the police put his identity to ink. They stamp his fingerprints on a form, and so begins their search through their database. So searching their database is going to take a long time. Don't forget that Clark Rockefeller is currently standing trial for kidnapping his daughter, Ray. His bond, they set it at $50 million, which frankly should be easy enough to pay. This guy's a Rockefeller. However, he does have no job and a $0 a year salary, so I don't know if he can swing it. But they did have to set the bail that high, according to Assistant District Attorney David Deacon, who said that it was set that high because this guy's stories were literally so numerous and so varied, they are proving to be difficult to keep track of, even using a database. 
<laughs> Do you think that's why it's taking so long to search for his fingerprints because the database is filled up with his lies and the modem just like can't compute all of this information on the interwebs? I mean, let's just say this. If you have felt confused at all about names or places up until this point, (laughs) so did the police. (laughs) You are not alone. And frankly, setting the bail that high is probably a smart move. I mean, if anyone's a flight risk, it's probably the guy with multiple aliases and pending charges. So let's talk strategy. First, Clark pleads guilty to kidnapping his daughter. But then his defense lawyer argues, you know what? Your marriage was never legally even valid. So no custody agreement could be valid either. He kind of has a point. I mean, Clark Rockefeller never could get married because Clark Rockefeller never existed. And frankly, this is probably the reason that Clark wanted to get married in a Quaker ceremony. It gives the illusion of legitimacy, but there actually is no legal legitimacy to it. It's like he could argue later whatever he wanted, whatever suited his interests, right? Because the marriage was spiritually legitimate, he probably got the $800,000 divorce settlement. But because legally it was illegitimate, he never was officially married. So I just think at this point, he should give her back the $800,000. But that that's just me. That's just me. Yeah, I don't think she's going to see that money. Um And also, no matter what you decide about this Quaker ceremony, it doesn't really account for the fact that he 100% kidnapped his daughter. So Clark does quickly abandon this strategy and fire this lawyer and hire a new guy who will argue that Clark Rockefeller is not guilty by reason of insanity. Classic move. But isn't insanity usually for murder cases? Yeah, totally. But I think it can work here, too. The defense just says, look, this guy Clark, he had begun living in a magical, insane world where he was morally obligated to save his daughter because he truly did believe, first of all, that he was a Rockefeller. And he also believed that Ray was sending him telepathic messages. Rescue me. Rescue me. Rescue me. I'll take you. He just was listening to the radio. So he was listening. <laughs> turns to. out that was just the radio. Turns out it was just rescue me <laughs> on the radio. But frankly, I'd call that insane. I don't know insane to the level the degree of the law is going to imply insane, but this guy sounds crazy. The prosecution then counters that for a man who is, quote, insane, Clark sure did a lot of planning and manipulation to pull off said kidnapping. He bought a new home in Baltimore under the identity of a Peruvian ship captain, which let me remind you, the name is Chip Smith. I don't know who to believe on that. Is Chip (laughs) Smith a Peruvian sea captain? Chip, if you're out there, call me. He also hid his divorce settlement in gold coins. He organized three getaway vehicles, and he told his accomplices that he was taking his daughter sailing with a son of a U.S. senator known to be friendly with the Rockefellers. Yeah, but here's the thing. Clark does have a long history of lies and manipulations, which Sandra Boss testifies to. And she goes into court, and man, they take her to task. They're, they're, they're talking to her about how could you have bought this guy's bullshit for this long? She is a high-powered corporate consultant with degrees from Harvard and Stanford. And you're telling me that this guy told you the woofness story and you went for it? I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow. It feels a little victim-blamey to me, though. Like, the person who is 
the problem here is the one who kidnapped his daughter and lied about his identity. But through this line of questioning, Sandra admits that it just never even occurred to her that she was being lied to about something so basic, like who he is. I know what you're going to say. You're going to talk about how bad you feel for Sandra and that she, you know, she's in this courtroom and Don't they're embarrassing her. Don't put words in my her. mouth. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Were you not? <laughs> I was. I feel bad for her too, but – and I don't think she knew of the magnitude of this till she hired that PI. And at least when she hired him and she gets divorced, she's probably saying to herself, well, at least not that many people know uh, that this guy really pulled the wool over my eyes. But now she's in this public court of law. She's been probably promoted a million times since. And people are looking. And it must be just shattering. Just she must be so embarrassed. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's very embarrassing. I mean, but she points again to the fact that being um an intelligent woman didn't make her immune to being had. She says it's possible that one can be brilliant and amazing in one area of one's life and pretty stupid in another. God, I loved her saying this. And some might say maybe you Maybe everyone in my life would probably say that I'm gullible or I believe people. What am I going to do? Not start not believing people? Like if I were to meet someone in a bar and they say their name and they say where they work, I would have no reason not to believe them, right? Well, sure, but <laughs> sure, days, Quinn. Just see, a, Quinn, this is where we're different. Well, quick tip: you can look it up. Like it's not. Well, I mean, I gotta tell you, I this happened to me. I went to a bar. I met a guy. He told me where he worked. We went on a couple of dates. Turns out, he didn't work where he said he worked, and it was that was after three dates, and I was weirdly shattered. Like, oh my god, what else was a lie? What did he say his social security was? <laughs> He told me his address. I will find him. I will find out where he works. But it's like you have no reason not to believe this guy. And so it's like when the foundation is set and you just believe it, to me, it's not a stretch of how someone could end up where she ended up. So who is this guy, okay? Is he Clark Rockefeller? Is he Christopher Chichester? Is he Christopher Crow? Is he D.B. Cooper? The Lindbergh baby? Bigfoot? A Yeti? Who? <laughs> who? None of the above. When the police's database search finds a match for this guy's fingerprints, it actually points them to the immigration records of a German man named Christian Gerhardstreiter. So we understand why he changed his name. This guy moved to the U.S. in the 1970s looking just for a new adventure, for a good time. And an adventure he certainly found. He posed as a German exchange student and he stayed with anyone who would have him. And we mean anyone. Like while he was in Germany, a family would come and he'd help them out and he'd make friends with them. And they would say something like an American would say, which is, hey, if you're ever in town, come on and stay with us in Connecticut. And so this guy, Christian, just shows up at their house and is like, hey, remember when you said I could stay with you anytime I'm here? Well, guess what? I'm here. I'm here. And he would stay at these homes for months before they would kick him out for just being an absolute jerk and the worst house guest ever. Yeah, he'd be like, why doesn't your help serve the food? Oh, didn't we have this last night? He just sounds like he was an absolute bag of dicks to everyone he stayed with. <laughs> he probably... He probably has stinky feet, probably stunk up everyone's house too. 
Ugh. These guys are like, where's your socks, man? <laughs> In 1981, he lived in Wisconsin, where he married into an American visa. And, you know, pretty unsurprisingly, he skipped town as soon as he got that green card and totally stiffed the woman that he promised to pay for the marriage. And around 1982, the next year, he pops up in San Marino, California, posing as British royalty, I guess hence the name Chichester. He just, he fleeced everyone. Folks believed that this guy was a baronet and that he was educated and wealthy and all these older women in town kind of take a strong liking to him and are giving him rides places. And strangely, none of them knew exactly where he lived, even though they did give him rides. It's like, drop me at the corner. Drop me at the corner. I'll walk the rest <laughs> of it. Like it's a that different trick? corner every time. Mm-hmm. He also volunteered at a TV station and produced the show Inside San Marino. So to confirm with you, yes, he did have a more successful TV career than both Quinn and me. So good for him. Now you really know why we hate him. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't have a true crime podcast, but we are talking about him for an hour. No, he was also known to crash weddings and dinners, which frankly is the only ones that I can get on board with. Um, but generally he got by because nobody was asking too many questions. Fake it till you'll make it. It's like any red flags were just excused because he was rich and eccentric. That makes sense to me. Like all the weird stuff, like I only eat white foods and I don't wear socks. Like everything that's kind of like gross or weird, you're like, Uh, rich rich people, they're crazy. Right around this same time, though, he began living in Linda and John Sohus's guest house before the two went missing in 1985, leaving for a mysterious trip and never returning home. Clark Rockefeller, which we now know to be Christian Gerhardt Strider, is found guilty in the kidnapping of his daughter, Ray. He's also convicted of several other offenses related to the kidnapping, and he's in the end sentenced to four to five years in prison. This is not the end of the legal road for Christian Gerhardt Strider because when the police did that fingerprint search, they came up with yet another document in addition to Christian's immigration form. His fingerprints match those on a California license registration under the name Christopher Chichester, the same name suspected in the disappearance of Linda and John Sohus. And with that, they bring Christian Gerhardt's writer out of his prison cell and back to trial. Can I get a gavel sound effect? This time, for murder. A lot of the details in the murder of Linda and John Sohus are murky, but here's what we know. The Sohuses were somewhat introverted. They loved Dungeons and Dragons. Linda enjoyed painting and sketching, loved horses, and all things sci-fi. John and Linda told their friends and loved ones that John, who was very into computers, though not what one would call successful, had been offered a top-secret government job, and they were actually going to hire Linda as well. I mean, that gives me some alarm bells. First of all, he's not that good at computers, but got a top-secret government job. And then Linda, who likes sci-fi and horses, they're like, yeah, bring her on as well. We definitely need her for this top-secret job. do you know how well Dungeons & Dragons transfers over to computer science? Clearly, you're showing that you don't know anything about Dungeons & Dragons. Frankly, also, this is the 80s, okay? Nobody knew what computers were. <laughs> <laughs> well... 
Whatever the job was, they tell everybody, we got to fly to New York to finalize this secret stuff. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And they don't tell John's mom that. They tell her, oh, we're going to France. Presumably, they lied to her because maybe someone was telling them this is so top secret, you should make up what you're up to. What we do know is that before leaving town, they dropped Linda's six very beloved cats off at a shelter. And they told the shelter, see you in two weeks. They never returned to pick up the damn cats. For months, the only point of contact between the missing couple and their friends and family was the man living in their guest house, Christian Gerhardt's writer. Is it Christian Gerhardt's writer or is it Christopher Chin- Chichester? It's both. They know him as Christopher Chichester. His name is Christian Gerhardt's writer. Christian, or Christopher, is telling folks that they're fine. He even forges postcards from New York and France to make it seem like the Sohus were still on their trip. But while they're nowhere to be found, this guy living in the guest house, Christian, is hosting picnics in the backyard, and people are like, wow, the Earth's really dug up back here. What's going on? And he's like, oh, the plumbers, they had to come by and do some work on the pipes. It isn't until 10 years later when the new owner of the house digs up the backyard to build a pool, that they find a box full of bones that are later identified as John Sohus. Linda's remains are never found. When Christian Gerhard Strider is brought to trial in 2013 for the murder of John Sohus, he's very calm, very unemotional. For one, he's only being charged for one murder, because Linda Sohus's remains are never found, so they can't charge him with her murder. And two, he's calm because the evidence against him is scant. But if you ask me, it is compelling. Two plastic bags had been wrapped around John Sohus's skull, and both were from bookstores at two U.S. universities where Gerhard Strider had studied. Witnesses recall smelling a putrid burning from the Sohus's backyard around the time of the murder. And Christian borrowed a chainsaw to, quote, deal with some shrubs around that time, too. And another witness, this couple, remembers that Christian tried to sell them an oriental rug prior to leaving town. And they're like, oh, what's this big stain on it? Is that blood? And he's like, you know what? On second thought. And he rolled it up and took the rug with him. Which that interaction does make me laugh. Awkward. Where he tried to be like, do you want this? What is, oh, uh, never mind. He just rolls and it up. Like, and isn't this evidence? And he's like, yep, glad you pointed that out. I'll be taking it with me. <laughs> Before he skipped town, they also recall him asking for advice on where to bury a, quote, drum filled with film processing chemicals. Which, by the way, don't bury that. That is very bad for the environment. But he was a film student at the time. Prosecutors believe that he was looking for a secluded place to bury his victims. The jury deliberates for six hours over the course of two days. They find that Christian Gerhard Strider used a sharp instrument and blunt object to kill John Sohus. The now 52-year-old is found guilty of murder and sentenced to 27 years to life. Christian Gerhard Strider is still alive today, serving time at San Quentin Prison in California, which we all know is one of those evil states. On an alpine hill in a little Bavarian town in Germany, in a small house with blue shutters and window boxes of geraniums, a frail old woman hears the news that her son is alive. 
Christian Gerhardt's writer is alive. She's absolutely floored. She says, for me, he should really be dead. When Alexander Gerhardt's writer sees Christian's picture in the news, he says, it seems you found my brother. The sons of a house painter and a seamstress, the Gerhardt's writers were a humble family, and they haven't spoken to Christian in over two decades. He went to study abroad in America years ago and eventually stopped calling them with updates on his life. But they remember him in his youth as smart, arrogant, and loving all things Hollywood. Of his brother's wild life, Alexander says, I think Germany was too small for him. He wanted to live in the big country and maybe get famous. Now that I see all this, he's really famous. Can we just have a minute to recognize that although this guy is terrible and we hate his guts, the he's good at what he does. The depth of the con is, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. He tricked people into thinking he was a physicist, cardiologist, Hollywood producer, art collector. We didn't even get into his art collection. This guy, remember, he's like has no money, but he's yeah. constantly showing off this art collection that is worth. I don't know, billions of dollars in a way that Sanders like, why don't you just sell a piece of art? And he's like, I would never. And then obviously <laughs> later everyone finds out like they're all fakes. They're just fakes. They're yeah, all posters totally. you got at MoMA. <laughs> 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 he went to the gift shop and he's like, I need, I need this Renoir. He claimed that he was the Hollywood director, Christopher Crowe, also. Like, the guy that did the film Last of the Mohicans. Well, I mean, I think with a director, people, they're, they're not necessarily, like, recognizable faces. It's probably, like, a fair... That's ballsy, though. That's ballsy. crazy. Very ballsy. I mean, these are ballsy, and these lies, more than ballsy, they're not brief. They're not without commitment. He spent 16 years fooling the world into thinking he was a Rockefeller, and he fooled Sandra for over 10 and I'm just really interested in the psychology of how he was able to do that. I mean, like I said before, I think he's like a manipulative cult leader. He knows who to target. He knows what to say. He knows that the lies need to be big enough where people just don't check on him. And I think he learned that early. I think you've said it too. It's like, this is clearly an escalation of where he started. And I also like, it does beg the question for me, like I'm not sitting there defending his insanity plea because he's a con man. He knows what he's doing. But I can't imagine what your own self-awareness or self-identity, like what the consequence of doing this is, right? Like, he was raised as Christian Gerhardt's writer, and he ends as Clark Rockefeller. Like, who do you think he believed he was? Not only that, but when he went into court, his lawyers said to the judge, we know it's not his name, but can we call him Clark Rockefeller? Uh, yeah. It'll be simpler. Everyone knows him by that name. And the judge had to be like, no, no. you don't get to make up what name you call him. Because you know like, this guy would be like, illegal. see, in a, legal, in a legal setting, I was called <laughs> Clark Rockefeller, so that's my name. Like Only he was found exactly. guilty. Exactly. And I think, but I think that's such like a perfect encapsulation of how he managed, right? It's like... A lie just becomes the truth if it's repeated a bunch of times, and that's what he – and through different mouths, right? It's like the more people called him Clark Rockefeller, I think the reason he went by Rockefeller is he was trying to get, like, a reservation at a table or something. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, by the way, I'm Clark Rockefeller. And they were like, right this way, right this way, right this way. And so he sees this, like, instant reaction of a powerful name and is like, oh – 
this is who I am now. And that becomes his new truth. And in that way, he's preying on America. He's yeah. preying on our own, like, screwed up conceptions of wealth and power yeah. and what we'll do for people that we think have those things. I mean, that's the capitalist world we live in, right? I'm just impressed <laughs> that the people he hung with were, like, these really smart people. And he was he fleeced them. He, there was this guy, Walter Kern, that was um, really smart. You know, he went to, like, Stanford or Harvard or whatever. He was a really smart guy. He's an author and a journalist. And he was friends with, quote, Clark for a bunch of years. And over the course of their relationship, Clark convinced him that Britney Spears and Chancellor Cole had been staying at his house, the one in Cornish. Wait, this sounds fun. This sounds yeah. fun. Well, and I remember, like, the guy was, like, not on to him, but enough that he would, like, ask questions of him. And at one point, he was like, I know the president. And I think this guy, Walter, was like, do you what? really, though? And he wrote the president's number down and said, call him, say that I said to call him. And the guy never made the call. You know, but it's like he's he's relying like on chicken. <laughs> yes, he's playing chicken. At one point, they're in his yard. And he goes, you know, I've been making honey from the beehive in that tree. And he points to a tree that has no beehive in it. And Walter finds himself going... Oh, yeah. And not calling him out. And it's it's a case of the emperor's new clothes where no one is willing to say, I see you. I see the lie. They're too embarrassed or worried about breaking a social norm. Yeah. Or they see everyone else around them believes it, so they think they should too. For whatever reason, people get caught up in that, and he's able to get away with it. They don't want to – they'd rather – Believe him and look stupid. Then create that conflict. I also, listen, we've talked so much in this episode about these Ivy League schools that people went to and how intelligent they are. And it's less about, it's less about that how could these people be fooled? And it's more about this could happen to literally anyone. It doesn't matter your educational background. To believe someone is to believe someone. And that no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your intelligence level is, it can happen to anyone. And I think that's something that I always am like humbled by in these type of cases with con people or in cults. It's like, you know what? Like you have to be skeptical. I do want to be a professional skeptic in the world. Unfortunately, these cases make me have to be. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. Reporting from The Telegraph, including an article entitled Clark Rockefeller, The Great Pretender and the book, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit by Mark Seal. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.